name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Mark Twain once said that anger is an acid, an acid that does more harm to the container in which it's stored than to anything on which it is poured. And as a pastor, I can certainly testify to the truth of that statement. Over the years, I have seen unbridled anger and wrath destroy every manner of relationship. Friendships and families, marriages and partnerships, you name it. And this is why the Bible repeatedly warns us of the dangers of uncontrolled anger. The psalmist says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. The book of Proverbs says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts to folly. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Mark Twain was right. Anger can be a terribly corrosive agent. And that's why if there is one human emotion that we would expect to be absent from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be this one. When most of us think of Jesus, when we think of his demeanor and character during his time on earth, we imagine someone who was loving and long-suffering, don't we? We think of somebody who was merciful and kind. We remember how Jesus had compassion on the crowds, even when he was exhausted because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We recall how Jesus wept openly at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and prayed for his enemies even from the cross. We remember how he welcomed sinners and healed the sick, ate with prostitutes and even tax collectors. Yes, the image that we have in our mind's eye of Jesus is a picture of Jesus meek and mild. It's the picture of the good shepherd who at the risk of his own life leaves the 99 in the safety of the fold and goes out in search of the one who is lost. But an angry Jesus? Well, let's be honest, that is the one thing we don't tend to imagine. Oh, we know that God sometimes got angry in the Old Testament, but somehow that just doesn't seem to translate to his son in the New. And yet today's gospel lesson from Mark chapter 3 reminds us that Jesus on occasion did get angry. As a matter of fact, on this particular occasion, Jesus became very angry, grieved, and frustrated. What's going on here in Mark chapter 3 that even the Son of God should become angry? Well, the issue becomes clear when we realize that today's gospel lesson is actually the culmination of a running battle between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. As I'm sure you're all aware, the scribes and the Pharisees were the Lord's sworn opponents. They were always out there plotting his downfall. What you may not realize, however, is that even though they were often misguided and hostile, the Pharisees, initially at least, were driven by a very noble goal. They wanted to maintain the purity of Israel's religion. 
You see, for centuries, the Jews had been an oppressed and marginalized people, oppressed and marginalized by a whole series of empires, like people living behind the Iron Curtain during the days of the Soviet Union. They had been under tremendous pressure from an unbelieving and hostile culture and world to compromise, to give in, to abandon their faith. And unfortunately, over the years, many of them had done just that. Many of them had compromised, given a little here, given a little there. Some of them had completely capitulated and allowed themselves to be assimilated into this unbelieving world. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees were one group that had not. The Pharisees had courageously resisted this temptation to give in. As a matter of fact, they were so determined to maintain the faith of their fathers pure and without defilement that if that required death, they were willing to face death. And as a consequence, they had determined that there would be certain fixed points in their lives on which they, no matter what anybody else did, would never, ever compromise. They would never compromise, for example, on such things as the kosher laws set forth in the Old Testament, stating what Jews were permitted to eat and not eat, what was clean and unclean. They would never compromise on the idea of the tithe, the giving of the first fruits of their labors unto the Lord. And perhaps most important of all, they determined that no matter what, they would never, ever compromise on the question of the Sabbath. The fourth commandment was clear. The Sabbath was the Lord's day, holy unto the Lord. It was to be a day of rest. And on this point, the Pharisees were absolutely unbending. And that's why if you stop and you think about it for a moment, there really is something noble about the Pharisees, almost admirable about them. Because, folks, let's face it, as Christians living at the dawn of the 21st century, we are facing precisely the same kind of cultural pressures, aren't we? The world out there is constantly trying to force us into its mold, to force us to compromise the things we believe, to give a little here, give a little there, until we soon discover there's really not anything left to give. And that's why if we are at all serious about our Christianity, then like the Pharisees, we are going to have to put up a stout resistance. If we want to see the faith of our fathers passed on to our children and our grandchildren, pure and without alloy, then that means there's going to come a point where we're going to have to have certain fixed points in our own lives where we, no matter what, are not willing to compromise. Pharisees were like that, and they paid a price for it, and for that they are to be admired. But alas, as so often happens in situations like this, the Pharisees, in their zeal for the law, lost perspective. They began to forget what they were really all about. They became so concerned for the letter of the law that they forgot the spirit of the law. And they began to twist and distort almost beyond recognition the very things that they had sworn to uphold. And the way they did this was by adding man-made rules, their own rules and regulations, to God's law. 
And nowhere, nowhere was this distortion more apparent than when it came to this whole subject of the Sabbath. For example, everybody in Jesus' day knew that the law strictly forbade traveling on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. But the question arose, what constitutes traveling? Well, in response to this question, the scribes and the Pharisees developed the concept of a Sabbath day's journey, in which they said it was perfectly legitimate for a man or a woman to travel 1,000 yards from their front door. But if you went one step beyond that 1,000 yards, you had violated the law. But the Pharisees went on to say, if on Friday afternoon, before the Sabbath, somebody tied a rope across the end of the street, well, then technically all of the houses on that street became a single dwelling. And a person could actually pass a thousand yards beyond the end of the rope and still be in compliance with the law. Pretty ingenious, don't you think? And then there was the whole question of carrying a burden. The law is set forth in the book of Exodus, clearly stated that no one was to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Not even an animal, a donkey or a horse, was to be saddled on the Sabbath. But the question arose, well, what constitutes a burden? Is a handkerchief a burden? Well, the Pharisees said, that depends. If you go to a bureau and you take the handkerchief out of the bureau and tie it around your neck as an article of clothing, then no, it's not a burden. But if you take it out of the bureau drawer and you pass from one room to the other with it in your hand, then yes, it is a burden and you have violated the Sabbath and you're a sinner. And here's my favorite. A man is sitting outside his house, it's the Sabbath day, and he spits on the ground. The Pharisee said that if that man's spittle made even a slight indentation in the dust, then technically speaking, that man had worked because he was guilty of, wait for it, plowing. Like plowing a field. However, the Pharisee said if that man's spittle landed not in the dust and did not create a furrow, but landed instead on a rock and did not create a furrow, well, then the man had not worked and he had not violated the Sabbath. Now, I realize all of this seems rather silly to us. But you have to understand that to the Pharisees, this was deadly serious business. After all, this was God's law, and God's law deserved to be taken seriously. But I'm sure you can see what's happening here, can't you? All this splitting of hairs, all of this layering of rule upon rule, regulation upon regulation, it had actually distorted the law. What God intended to be a blessing to His people, marking them out from the nations of the earth, was suddenly becoming a burden, an onerous system of dotting I's and crossing T's and works righteousness. And we're told that Jesus found the entire system abhorrent. He said the Pharisees were hypocrites. He said, oh, they love to tie up heavy burdens with their rules and regulations which they place on other men's shoulders. Burdens that they themselves are not capable of carrying. And to make matters worse, he said, they would not even lift a finger to lighten the load. Well, that, you see, is the background 
for this morning's gospel lesson. What's happening here in Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus has run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders because to their way of thinking, their way of viewing things, Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. Jesus performed acts of mercy on the Sabbath. His disciples washed with un- ate with unwashed hands on the Sabbath. They'd be going through the fields of wheat and breaking off the heads of grain and munching on them on the Sabbath. As the Pharisees saw it, Jesus was nothing more than a traitor to the law of Moses. And because he'd become so popular with the crowd, they were determined to prove that he was a traitor once and for all. Look at how today's lesson begins. And again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might have a reason to accuse him. You know, there's a certain class of people in the church. I call them pouncers. There are those big fellows that stand outside of bars and taverns and check IDs. We call them bouncers. But here in the church, they're pouncers. You know the type of person. They have a very critical spirit. Nothing is ever right. They're always looking for something to complain about, somebody to criticize, somebody to jump or pounce on. Well, let me tell you, the Pharisees were the consummate pouncers. They're always hiding behind corners or jumping out from among the sheaves of wheat and shouting out, ha, I caught you, I saw what you were doing, and wagging their fingers in an accusing manner. And that's exactly what they're doing here. In fact, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this entire scene in Mark 3 was probably engineered by the Pharisees with the intent of entrapping Jesus, even using this man with the withered hand as an innocent pawn. Because you see, this was the sort of thing the Pharisees had done on other occasions. Once they brought before Jesus a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they came to entrap him. Now, it becomes clear as you read through the story, they could care less about the woman. They didn't even care about what she had done. But they were willing to expose her to public ridicule and even to stoning in order to get at Jesus. That's what they're doing here, because the text says they were looking for a reason to accuse him. Well, the tension in the synagogue that day must have been palpable. You could feel the electricity. You know what it's like when there's going to be a fight. You've been in a situation like that, whether you're going into a boardroom meeting or you're going into a faculty meeting or you're going into a vestry meeting, you know things have been boiling for some time and the lid's about to go off and you're just waiting. Well, that's the way it was that day in the synagogue. Everybody was straining to see, would Jesus rise to the bait? Would he heal this needy man on the Sabbath and incur the wrath of the Pharisees and be judged a lawbreaker, or would he pass the needy man by? This was the fight for the title. And everybody wanted to see who was going to throw the first punch. 
But Jesus does something rather extraordinary, doesn't he? He calls the man with a withered hand to come to the front of the congregation. He'd been sitting in the back. How do I know he was sitting in the back? It's because that's where people with withered hands always sit. They don't want to be noticed. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. But Jesus has the man come to the front of the congregation. And then looking out over the crowd, he asks this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? Now that was a legitimate question. Jesus was simply asking, if a woman goes into labor on the Sabbath day, Does she have to muscle through the ordeal entirely by herself without the aid of a midwife or a doctor simply because her water broke on Saturday? Or if an elderly man falls down a flight of steps and he's bleeding, is he to be left to bleed to death simply because the accident happened on the Sabbath? Which was it to be, Jesus wanted to know, good or harm, save a life or kill it? Well, everybody in the synagogue that day knew the answer to that question. Heck, even the Pharisees knew the answer to that question. Of course, if a life was in mortal danger, it was allowable to violate the Sabbath in order to help the needy person. That was the greater good. Ah, but you see, that was just the problem. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, this man with the withered hand... He was not in mortal danger. Oh, it's true he had a physical handicap, and that was unfortunate. But the point was that he had a physical handicap, a withered hand on Friday. He was going to have a withered hand on Sunday. And if Jesus wanted to heal him and could do so, fine. But he needed to do it on Sunday, not Saturday. The man had to wait. And so we're told they sat there silent and they spoke not a word. And that's when it happened. We're told that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Do you want to know what grieves God? Do you want to know what angers Jesus Christ? It's right there in the text. It's a hardness of heart. Now, yes, Jesus is going to go on. You needn't fear. Jesus is going to go on, and he's going to heal this man. He's going to heal him on the Sabbath. But what I find interesting is that he's going to do it in a way that really not even the Pharisees could complain. You'll notice Jesus never touched this man. He never laid a hand on him, never anointed him with oil, nothing. Jesus simply spoke to him. Jesus simply said, stretch out your hand. And as he did, his hand was restored. Well, there was no law that even the Pharisees knew that said that a man couldn't speak on the Sabbath. But apparently it was enough in their mind to condemn him. Because today's text ends with these sober words, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's ironic, isn't it? Jesus was asking a simple question. On the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? And 
almost everybody in the synagogue that day assumed that he was talking about that man with the withered hand. But he wasn't. Jesus was talking about the Pharisees. And they knew it. Because here they were, clothed in all of their respectability, in church, on the Sabbath. And that is exactly what they were planning to do. They were seeking to do someone, to do him, harm. They were planning, on the Sabbath, to take a life, to destroy him. Later on in this gospel, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. It's what comes out of his heart that evil thoughts proceed. Murder, envy, adultery, etc. The problem for the Pharisees was a hardness of heart. And it's worth stopping for a moment and asking the question, how did this condition develop? Because as we've already noted, the Pharisees initially at least started off very well. They were driven by a noble goal, but now they were here plotting the demise of the Son of God. What caused their hearts to become hardened? Well, it's interesting. The word that is translated as hard in this passage literally means calloused. And we all know how a callous is formed, don't we? A callous is the result of friction. If you've ever done any kind of manual labor, it is the friction between your hand and the tool, whether that be a hammer, a rake, a shovel, whatever it is, that creates a blister. And that blister is painful and sensitive. But if you keep it up enough, long enough, frequently enough, that friction will eventually cause that blister to turn into a callus, a protective layer of skin that is hard, impervious, and unfeeling. What happened to the Pharisees is simple. The Son of God had come into this world to do the very thing that they claimed they wanted Him to do. To purify Israel's religion. To take people out of darkness into light, into a life-saving relationship with God. But because Jesus didn't see things the way they saw it. He was more concerned with the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. Jesus knew that the Sabbath had been made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And because they didn't see things the way they saw them, they were offended by Him. And they turned away from Him. And He'd call out to them again, and they would turn away from Him. And He'd call out again, and they would turn away from Him. And it was the friction. It was the friction that was created between His gracious invitation and their willful, stubborn pride that caused their hearts to become calloused and hard and insensitive and unfeeling to the needs of others, needs of people like this man with a withered hand, he can wait. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. What is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart this morning? I am not asking the question 
Are you religious? This is going to seem like a strange thing for the rector to say, but I'm not interested in your religion. I'm not interested in whether or not you come to church this morning. Or whether you've been confirmed or baptized or you receive the sacrament or you pay your tithe. Because let's remember, the Pharisees were the most religious people in the world. What I want to know is, when Jesus Christ calls out to you, if He's been calling you into a relationship with Him, are you turning away from Him? If He's calling you to some particular work, some particular vocation, do you find yourself turning away from Him? Wanting to do your own thing? Resisting His plea? His call? Because my friend, I want you to understand, if you do that often enough, frequently enough, the friction created between His gracious call and your refusal will create a calloused heart. You'll become insensitive, unfeeling to the needs of others and to the things of God. The Pharisees stand before us today as a powerful object lesson. A reminder of what happens to men and women when they refuse the grace and mercy of the Lord. Walter Russell Bowie was for many years a professor at the Virginia Theological Seminary, my old alma mater. And he wrote a wonderful hymn. It's one of my favorites. We'll sing it as our final hymn today. But the last stanza serves as an appropriate prayer for us all in the light of Mark chapter 3. It certainly is my prayer. I hope it will be your prayer as well. In that final stanza, Walter Russell Bowie says, O wounded hands of Jesus, build in us thy new creation. Our pride is dust, our vaunt is stilled, we wait thy revelation. O love that triumphs over loss, we bring our hearts before thy cross to finish thy salvation. We bring our hearts before his cross that he might take our hearts of stone Break them and give us hearts of flesh for Jesus' sake. Amen.